from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. As always, special thanks to some of my patrons. Katerina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, Emily, Wannabe Sleuth, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, Judy, and John. Thank you so much. Today's podcast is going to be on Harvey Glattman. Now, this one's going to come with my now infamous disclaimer, disclaimer, because it's going to get into some deeply sexually aggressive and disturbing themes and situations that, if you are easily triggered, will be disturbing. I'm not joking even a little bit. So listener discretion is highly advised. If you decide to skip this one, that's fine. No harm, no foul. We'll still be friends. Harvey Murray Glattman was born on December 19, 1927 in the Bronx, New York. So let's get into some history for that time. In the United States, the Holland Tunnel under the Hudson River opened, connecting New York City to Jersey. Charles Lindbergh flew the Spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic, nonstop solo from New York City to Paris, which was the first solo transatlantic flight. Henry Ford revealed the Ford Motor Company's newest vehicle, the Model A, in 1927. All production for the Model T ended. And work began on Mount Rushmore, which, if you aren't familiar, is a sculpture of four U.S. presidents carved into a mountain. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. In China, an earthquake measuring 8.6 on the Richter scale struck, killing over 200,000 people, making it one of the 10 most deadly earthquakes in history. In Canada, the official ceremony for the opening of the Peace Bridge connecting Canada to the U.S. happened this year. It was located just a few miles away from Niagara Falls. In Russia, Leon Trotsky was expelled from the Communist Party and Joseph Stalin took control. After Trotsky was deported from the Soviet Union and taken to Mexico, he wrote a number of books while in exile criticizing Stalinism. Trotsky was then assassinated by a Soviet agent 13 years later. Flapper girls were a big thing at this time. The first transatlantic telephone call from New York City to London was successful, and Pan Am Airways was formed. The color television was invented in Scotland, and Pope Benedict XVI was born this year as well. 
So this was the atmosphere that Harvey was born into. His parents were Albert Glattman and Ophelia Gold. Albert was born in New York City in 1890, the son of Jewish immigrants. There isn't much information about his life other than his family moved to the Bronx and he worked in the clothing trade. When he was 35 years old, he was working more in ladies' hats as well as being employed as a secretary for the Instructo Millinery Supply Company. Within his first year at the company, he met the love of his life as she too worked there. Ophelia was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1888. She and her family immigrated to the United States at some point and were living in one of the boroughs in New York as well. When she met Albert, she was 37 years old and considered to be a, quote, old maid during those days. The book, quote, Rope, The Twisted Life and Crimes of Harvey Glattman, stated that she was flattered and thrilled to be asked out on a date by Albert. They instantly knew that they were a good match and they married quickly. It is said that Albert was frugal with money and had tirelessly saved. He and Ophelia decided to open a small stationery store around the time that Ophelia found out she was pregnant. She would later say that she gave birth to a healthy, happy, and normal baby boy. And while he was still a baby, the family moved out to Denver, Colorado, but it wasn't to be for long as they moved back to the Bronx shortly after. So when Harvey was three to four years old, Ophelia began to notice some very troubling behaviors in her young son. Being just a toddler, he was found to have tied a string around his penis, tied the other end to a drawer, and then leaned back against the string, pulling at his own genitalia. Now, most very small boys will grab at their penis and stretch it and pull on it for a while because, quite frankly, it's there and there is sensation. But his mother was shocked when she first found him doing that, but then she decided to blow it off. Around this same age, Harvey progressed from using string to finding rope and tying it around his neck, fastening the other end to a pipe or a rafter, using one hand to pull and yank on the rope and the other to pleasure himself, according to Radford University. At the tender age of five, it would seem that he had to have surgery to have his tonsils and adenoids removed in 1932. His mother would later say that he was not a sickly child, but caught the normal illnesses that most children do, including whooping cough. And we must remember that back then things were different and this was not out of the norm. Ophelia did get him vaccinated against smallpox, took him for checkups and so on. At six years old, Harvey began going to public school instead of his local synagogue. His mother would later say that he was, quote, a very good student, never truant, never gave anyone any trouble, unquote. At 11 years old, Harvey was already regularly engaging in autoerotic asphyxiation, which means strangling or suffocating oneself to heighten sexual arousal and orgasm. When the brain is deprived of oxygen, a sort of euphoria is achieved. And side note, don't do this. Please don't deprive your brain of oxygen. That's bad. Just don't. 
Now his parents eventually discovered what he was doing when they came home from work and found him with a red and swollen neck. They took him to a doctor that told them it was growing pains and that he would eventually outgrow it. This would also be around the time that the family left New York and moved back to Denver, Colorado and in with Ophelia's sister, Rosalie, for a short time. New York was becoming a bit of a hostile place for the Jewish community and the Great Depression was taking its toll on everyone. Albert and Ophelia were working 90 hours a week and were mentally and physically exhausted. A change of pace and scenery was in order. And as far as parenting types, Ophelia was the more lenient parent. She was indulgent and soft. Albert was very hands-on and he loved his son, but was described as quite strict and somewhat disapproving. So once settled in Denver, Albert caught his son masturbating and warned him that it would, quote, cause acne. For reference, he was already developing pretty severe acne and his ears were larger than average and his classmates took great pleasure in bullying him about it. It was at this point that Albert convinced himself that Harvey was homosexual, which back then was considered bad. At 12 years old, Harvey began junior high. Per Radford University, his peers continued to make fun of his severe acne and larger ears. But he tested, quote, very superior in school. He was most certainly introverted and was painfully shy when it came to girls. His face would turn red with embarrassment, and he would later say that he felt inadequate around them. His coping mechanism wasn't anything healthy. In fact, it was breaking into people's homes and stealing random things. He stole a handgun from one house. Harvey also began sort of stalking women while they walked home. One woman in particular he followed home, then forced her into her bedroom. He then placed a cloth into her mouth to gag her and bound her arms with a rope that he had brought with him. Once she was subdued, he took his time unbuttoning her blouse and unzipping her skirt to fondle her. Feeling the rush of having such control and seeing her terror, he went on to do this to multiple women. Needless to say, it didn't take him long to become quite comfortable with touching women. So comfortable, in fact, that his days of being so shy around women were effectively over. He would be verbally and physically aggressive with women that he crossed paths with in public. By the time he entered high school, he was holding women at gunpoint with a stolen gun, binding and gagging them, putting his hands on them while he pleasured himself, making them watch. In school, he stated that he had planned on attending college and wanted to study either aviation or mining engineering. He had been a Boy Scout and had a love of photography. On weekends, he worked as a delivery boy and really enjoyed his band class. And then he also began playing bondage games with himself. He tied a rope around his neck, got into the bathtub, and choked himself. He went into the family's attic and attempted to hang himself from the rafters. 
Again, his parents took him to a psychiatrist where they assured the worried couple that it was just a phase and prescribed him pills, though I couldn't find out what exactly they prescribed him. Now, as the woman reported these assaults to the police, they described him as an adolescent, thin, with prominent ears and a, quote, chipmunk face. So, while out on patrol in May of 1945, an officer recognized Harvey and saw him attempting to break into the apartment of a young woman and detained him. On him, they found some rope and a 25 caliber pistol. He was arrested and charged with first-degree burglary and his mother bailed him out. Not even a month later, he saw a woman standing at a street corner in Boulder. He pulled out his gun and told her to come with him and to not make a sound. She did as instructed and he forced her into his car. Harvey then drove to Sunshine Canyon, which was west of town, and found a secluded spot to stop. He then used some rope and tied her hands together. He produced some cloth that he gagged her with and then what happened next is sort of vague. Sources say he laid beside her all night. Apparently, he fondled her, but he did not rape her. Early in the morning, he took her home, and she immediately called the police to file a report. At the police station, she was shown several mugshots where she quickly and easily identified Harvey. He was arrested again, and this time missing his high school graduation. And this was his childhood. Quite frankly, I don't even know where to begin. His parents seemed like normal people, or rather what we would label as normal. Both married a bit later in life by the standards of their day, in their mid and later 30s. Both worked hard and created a small business together and seemed to survive considering it was during the Great Depression. They just had the one child and there was no abuse or neglect in the home reported. His mother was soft tolerating more than what most mothers would back then, but I'd say she was pretty average to today's standards. His father was indeed attentive, but did not approve of how his wife coddled their child, but again, pretty typical. Another typical thing is little boys playing with themselves. What is borderline abnormal is tying a string to it, the other end to a dresser, and leaning back as far as he could stand the pain and enjoying that pain at four years old. By the age of six, he was engaging in autoerotic asphyxiation, choking himself while masturbating. According to that book, Rope, which I will leave a link to in the notes, we can compare Harvey's early years with FBI statistics on childhood development. They studied 36 convicted sex killers, which included 29 with multiple victims. Quote, 72% had negative relationships with male caregiver figures. 73% of the killers had endured sexually stressful events in childhood with significant results. 82% practiced compulsive masturbation prior to adolescence. 79% indulged in unspecified autoerotic practices. 72% nurtured fetishes, and 71% enjoyed childhood voyeurism. The fact that Harvey was but an older toddler when he began to fit this profile 
other than the voyeurism is really something to think about. It is said that Harvey never spoke of his father or mother or anyone else molesting him or anything of that nature, but it still begs the question of where this behavior came from. What, quote, sexually stressful events in his beginning years pushed him to perform genital ligation and self-inflicted pain? It is important to note that this behavior is actually very common among victims of early childhood sexual abuse. But again, he never named any perpetrator and for whatever reason, his later psychiatrist didn't bother to even ask him specifically. And many teens are shy and a bit fearful of interactions with people that they are attracted to, even to the degree that Harvey was, is not out of the norm. But his developing coping mechanism of beginning to stalk women or breaking into their apartments to bind and gag them just to be able to touch them is not. The doctors that his parents took him to, seeking help for their child that they knew was deeply disturbed, was met with indifference. Telling them that he would grow out of it and prescribing pills was obviously not the answer and extremely irresponsible. And I really wish I knew what they had prescribed him. But let's get back into the story. With Harvey in prison and then sent to the Colorado Psychiatric Hospital, he was evaluated by psychiatrist Dr. J.P. Hilton. And here is what he noted. It's kind of long. Quote, Harvey Glattman first came to see me in August of 1945 at the age of 17. At that time, he had a history of having bruised his neck by tying a rope around it. He was sullen, morose, and very disrespectful, and for several years had felt that everyone was against him, including his parents. He had been shy with girls prior to the past year when his attitude changed completely and he became aggressive with women. His past physical history was negative except for a tonsillectomy. The family history was negative except that a cousin of his father had been institutionalized." Unquote. So then Dr. Hilton diagnosed Harvey as schizophrenic, which during the time was described as having a split personality. Back then, it was used to describe a group of psychiatric disorders, stating the person withdrew from reality, had illogical thought patterns, suffered with delusions and hallucinations, and was accompanied by varying degrees of emotional, behavioral, or intellectual disturbances. But in 1945, there really wasn't much they could do. And then Harvey was bonded out of jail again, and he wasted absolutely zero time attacking women again. Two he bound, gagged, molested, and robbed in the Park Hill neighborhood of Denver. He also molested another woman, but she was able to escape, screaming out of her house. This led to him being arrested yet again and was housed in the Denver County Jail. He was then court-ordered to go back to the psychiatric hospital for about a week. The court then released his bond, dropped the charges for the Park Hill assaults, and in November of 1945, Harvey pleaded guilty to one of his assaults. Dr. Hilton was his only defense witness, and he recommended insulin shock treatments. 
Now, for those that are not familiar with this treatment, it was also called insulin coma therapy and was a form of psychiatric treatment where patients were repeatedly injected with large doses of insulin in order to produce daily comas over several weeks. It began in 1927 and was used extensively in the 40s and the 50s as a treatment for mostly schizophrenia. Back then, doctors reported that this treatment was effective in around 80% of patients. Others claimed it was only about 50% effective, and even then, in those who had only been having symptoms for less than a year. And if brain damage occurred during this treatment, well, they stated it was still a therapeutic improvement because they showed, quote, loss of tension and hostility. Then in December, he was seen by another doctor who diagnosed him with psychoneurosis, compulsive or anxiety type with depression, no evidence of schizophrenia. He then spent his 18th birthday behind bars. A physical examination while in prison with that doctor stated, quote, a well-developed and well-nourished male of 18 of athletic habitus. The hair is closely clipped. Features are Jewish, rather coarse. Teeth show good hygiene. Pharynx is negative. Heart and lungs, normal. Blood pressure, 115 over 75. Respiratory, gastrointestinal, and genitourinary systems, negative. Neurological examination, negative. He is a pleasant-appearing, somewhat embarrassed, and shy boy who has been a model inmate in the prison and has been made a trustee. He is cooperative and attentive during examination. His reaction time is prompt. He is slightly retarded in his productivity. He is relevant and coherent. His thinking and his ideas progress in a logically associated manner. Emotionally, he is complacent. The emotions are obviously resonant and he shows definite, appropriate, effective reaction to his situation in other words, he shows embarrassment speaking of sex. He is not unduly depressed by his prison term, feels that he has not been done an injustice. Abnormal thought content cannot be determined. There is no history or obvious finding of any hallucinatory experiences and no delusional content can be elicited. The sensorium is entirely intact. His counting and calculation General knowledge are consistent with his high school education. Warshock examination shows a good contact with reality and ability to get along with other people. He is rigid in his concept and his form perception is hyper accurate. There is evidence of anxiety, but emotions are well controlled. Practically no fantasy life is evident. There is color shock and rejection of color cards, which is consistent with a neurosis. Conclusion, I can find no evidence of schizophrenia and do not believe shock treatment is indicated, unquote. So now Harvey served eight months in prison working on a labor gang and was described as an average worker. He was paroled in July of 1946. Ophelia later stated that a doctor told her that she should take Harvey out of the state and get him dancing lessons to increase his confidence with young women. 
Harvey expressed to his mother that, you know, he'd like to get out of Colorado, so she took him back to New York and they settled in Yonkers, and he was able to behave himself for a whole month. In August, and armed with a toy gun, he stopped a couple on the street around midnight. He tied the man up with some rope and began to fondle the woman. However, the boyfriend was able to free himself and lunged at Harvey, who quickly pulled out a pocket knife, slashing at the young man and running away. A few nights later, on a train headed to Albany, he stuck his toy gun into the back of a young nurse and demanded her money. He then tried to bind her hands, but she began screaming and he ran away. The next night, he used his toy gun to mug two women and they went straight to the police. He was, of course, found two days later stalking his next victim. They detained him, they found his toy gun, a pocket knife, and some rope with him. And he was put right back in prison, Sing Sing to be exact, and sentenced to five to ten years. Again, while in prison, he was evaluated by yet another doctor who diagnosed him as having, quote, psychopathic personality, schizophrenic type with sexually perverted impulses as the basis for his criminality. While there, he was described as being psychoeducated and antisocial and that he should be segregated even if schizophrenia does not seem to be developed. And yet, he was out on parole again after less than three years. In 1948, 21-year-old Harvey was free. He was ordered to stay under the care of his mother, get a full-time job, and be under court-ordered observation for four and a half more years. So, he and his mother moved back to Denver, back in with his father. And for a time, there wasn't any information stating that he had caused any major trouble. It is reported that he worked various odd jobs and checked in with his parole officer as he was expected to. But he was very depressed and was having thoughts of suicide, even going as far as to gas himself in the family car in the garage, but he chickened out. And then in October of 1952, 62-year-old Albert's father died from complications of him having diabetes. Harvey was 25 years old. It was observed that he certainly acted like he was devastated at the passing of his father. Albert had been ill for a bit and Ophelia had been forced to work more and keep an eye on her son less, but with Albert's passing, she had to work even more to make ends meet, leaving Harvey to take care of himself. He succeeded for a time, and in 1954, he began working as a butcher in a suburb of Aurora, Colorado, where he earned $65 a week, which was not a bad wage for those days. This job lasted all of 10 months. And then he went to work as a clerk and delivery man for another market, but again, he was only there for about five months. He was officially released from parole in September of 1956, citing that, quote, his debt to society had been paid in full, unquote. In January of 1957, Harvey decided he wanted to move to Los Angeles. Once there and settled in, he took up his old hobby of photography, along with working as a TV repairman. 
He then began to visit what was referred to as camera clubs, where people would take, quote, art pictures of young, usually naked models. It was said that these girls were most often women who wanted to be actresses and were trying to make money however they could. Harvey began going by the name Johnny Glenn. He then called a young 19-year-old woman named Judith Dull, describing himself as a freelance photographer for a true detective magazine, offering her a photo shoot for $20 an hour, and she happily agreed to one that very afternoon. He asked her to wear a tight skirt and sweater. He met her at her apartment, and together they went to his supposed studio to begin the photo shoot. At first, she truly believed that it was just a fake bondage shoot, and she allowed Harvey to bind her with rope, gag her, and she acted as if she were truly terrified. Harvey took pictures of her tied in a chair, and then he pulled out a gun. He then undid her bindings and ordered her to strip naked, promising her no harm would come to her if she complied, that all he wanted was to have some fun with her. He then raped her repeatedly into the evening. He then told her he was going to drive her out to the middle of nowhere and give her bus fare to get back into town, and then he demanded she get into his car. He did indeed drive her out into the desert, only he strangled her with a cord, then took photographs of her posed dead body and left her to be consumed by the wildlife. Harvey then went quiet for seven months before striking again. In March of 1958, advertising himself as George Williams, a plumber in a Hollywood Lonely Hearts Club, he managed to set a dinner date with 30-year-old Shirley Ann Bridgeford. He picked her up and then drove to a secluded area off of a highway and pointed a gun at her. He proceeded to rape her multiple times in the back seat of his car. Once he had had his fill, he then drove her out into the desert and forced her to lay face down where he hogtied her, photographed her, strangled her to death, and then continued taking pictures of her corpse. Four months later, Harvey placed a classified ad in the Los Angeles Times looking for a model to pose for him. 24-year-old Rose Mercado answered the ad and agreed to let Frank Wilson, quote-unquote, come to her home. He showed up, and she presented her portfolio, which he looked through, and they agreed upon a price. He left, stating that he would call her soon. But the next night, he broke into her apartment, held her at gunpoint, and raped her, then drove her out to the desert where he did the same to her he had done to the previous two. Then, in late October, he created a fake modeling agency, and 28-year-old Lorraine Vigil agreed to pose for him at his fake studio. They hopped into his car, where he drove and then pulled over to the side of the road. He pulled out his gun and began to tie her up. She fought viciously and managed to somehow get Harvey to drop the gun, whereas she jumped from the car with Harvey still trying to subdue her. Miraculously, two policemen out on patrol happened to notice the scuffle and Lorraine escaping the car, and they immediately pulled over to investigate. Harvey was then and there immediately arrested.
So when he was questioned about the other victims, he confessed that he had killed them and that the photographs he took of them, both alive and dead, were in a toolbox he kept, which was found, and those pictures are but a Google search away. He led investigators to the sites where the bodies could be found and recovered and was then taken to the San Diego County Courthouse. The media dubbed him the Lonely Hearts Killer or the Glamour Girl Slayer. His trial lasted all of three days in December of 1958. The judge stated, quote, Some crimes are so revolting that there is only one penalty that can be imposed, and that is the death penalty, unquote. 69-year-old Ophelia argued that her son was terribly sick and did not deserve the death penalty. The court-appointed doctor determined that Harvey had no psychosis and knew right from wrong. He was sentenced to death in San Quentin's gas chamber. Harvey agreed that it was, quote, better this way, according to an article the Harold Schechter wrote for the Yale Review. Side note, a lot of you ask me where I get a lot of my information, and Harold is an excellent source. He is a most excellent source, actually. I mean, like, the true crime crush is real. Harvey asked the warden specifically that there be no attempt to save his life. He was executed in September of 1959 by inhaling cyanide and was dead within 12 minutes. He was later labeled a sociopath driven by sexual sadism to commit repeated acts of ritualized homicide. So tell me guys, do you think he was born to kill, conditioned to kill? And while there's no evidence that he was sexually assaulted or molested as a small child, I find it very hard to believe that something didn't happen to him. I truly feel that he must have experienced something in order to begin displaying the behaviors that he did at such a very young age. But if not one of his parents, then who? I'm afraid we're not ever going to know the answer. But tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com and as always, Thank you for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And to this day, I'm still humbled. Thank you so much. Have a great day.